there are certain qualifications that we must have if we are to be used by God, I think. These uh, qualifications, they, they don't include uh, great learning or, or, or genius or riches or executive ability or, or any sort of similar assets that, that many of us won't have and don't have. D.L. Moody tells us what they are, the things that we need. And he, he's quoted as saying, Paul sums up five things that God uses. The weak things, the foolish things, the base things, the despised things, and the things which are not. When we are ready to lay down our strength and our weakness before the Lord he can use us. Last week we looked at uh, shame, suffering, and salvation. All the things that, that Paul himself went through. And more importantly, all the things that Christ went through. Jesus faced shame from his birth in a manger to his death on a cross. And he was the Son of God. He experienced terrible suffering for the things that he taught and the things that he said. Also that salvation would be made available to whomsoever would come to him. Remember we talked about how shame and suffering can never outweigh salvation. And so I'm continuing with this uh, S theme that I think I've sort of picked up this pattern uh, of, of Paul's, but I've put it into my own words. Shame, suffering, salvation, and service. And it's interesting when you consider even the, the sequence that, that Paul makes here. And I don't want to draw too much attention to it because I don't know necessarily that this was his, his plan. It's just something that I've, I've uh, grasped in my looking at this, these scriptures. But if you think about it, after Christ suffers and undergoes, endures the, the shame and the suffering, and then he brings salvation through the death and the resurrection, what does he do next? He sends out his disciples into service. And they go out and do the work of ministry to the people. And they establish the church. And it seems possible that Paul is following this pattern as he writes to Timothy. And so he picks up in chapter 2, verse 1. You then, after he's given the illustration uh, of, of uh, Figilus and Hermogenes in the negative sense and, and, and Anesiphorus in the positive sense, and we laughed that we wish Paul had friends with easier to say names, uh, he goes on, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What do you want to bet? Figilus and Hermogenes were not strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. Christian service can be hard. In fact, later in this chapter, Paul tells Timothy not to be quarrelsome, to be kind to everyone, 
to be able to teach and patiently enduring evil. Christian service to Christ and his gospel and his people can be a real joy. But it is not without struggles. It is not without its challenges. The first really uh, serving opportunity that I had when uh, Lindsay and I were in Australia, when I started working with our church, was I was invited to serve in the ESL class, the English as a Second Language, and the staff would always joke that it was so that I could learn English, or at least Australian English, and I did. But I, I, I built these relationships uh, with these students who came from every part of the world you could imagine. And there was great difficulty in just our language barrier. And I taught a Bible study after the class, and I had to go through the great difficulty of trying to take complex issues and simplify them to people who barely spoke English. I had to speak slowly. I had to answer difficult questions. I had to understand different cultures and backgrounds and the way that they would interpret something I would say. Challenging as it was, in many respects, we still saw fruit from that. And and it wasn't just in their uh, proficiency in the English language. It was that people were beginning to understand who Christ was. People were beginning to understand what the Bible actually said. People who came from Catholic backgrounds and atheist backgrounds and all different types of cultural, uh, religious backgrounds. And they were hearing the truth of the gospel. What would have been the alternative to, to me not doing that? It would have been just to not do that, right? But what would I have missed out on? I would have missed out on seeing the joy of seeing the fruit being borne by these people from all these different regions who would have thought that they would go from their country to Australia, hear the truth of the gospel in an English class. So Paul has to encourage Timothy first because of the challenges and because of the things that come with Christian service. Not because Timothy needs to be strong in himself, you know, digging deep for the Lord, trying harder for God, but being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened inwardly by means of the grace that comes from Christ. Your resource for ministry, for Christian service, it's not in our own nature, but it's Christ's grace. And and it's not only for salvation that we are dependent on grace, but we are also dependent on grace for service to the Lord. Paul then goes on to indicate the kind of ministry that Timothy will need to strengthen himself uh, by Christ's grace. So far, he's urged him to hold on to the faith. He has Uh, urged him to guard the deposit. He has to do more than only uh, preserve the truth, however. Timothy doesn't just hold on to it for himself. He has to go a step further, and he has to pass it on. And we know that the abandonment of the truth by that church in Asia 
has made it absolutely vitally important that Timothy hold fast to the gospel because many are departing. So it's vital that he holds to that truth, holding to that, that pattern of sound teaching that, came, that he heard from Paul, hold fast to the, the, the truth of salvation in Christ alone. But on top of that, Paul knows that his days are numbered. And he knows that it's, it's unlikely that he's going to get out of this particular prison sentence. He knows his life is coming to an end. So that makes it even more pressing that Timothy hand the truth, the good news, the gospel, the way of salvation on to the next generation. Christ himself gave it to Paul. Of this he's adamant. He says as much in his letter to the Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's not an apostle that came by the twelve. He was chosen by God himself to lay the foundation of the church, and he hands his mission and his ministry on to the next generation. He hands his mission and ministry on to Timothy, who will then hand it on to the next generation, and the next generation will hand it on to the next generation, and so on until it came to you and I. We are the recipients of this handed down gospel from Christ to Paul to Timothy to us today. For 2,000 years, that same gospel message has gone forward. It, it has been attacked. It has been misunderstood. It has been trampled on. It has been praised and then dragged down. It has been chained up, locked up, buried boarded up at times and reinterpreted, but through all those efforts, the gospel remains. And we who are sitting here this morning are recipients of that gospel truth. And all of us are at a point in our lives where we can hand it on to someone else. Older generations handing it down to younger generations. Uh, parents to children. Saved people bringing lost people in and handing it on to them. And it's not always older handing it down to younger. When, uh, when we were in Australia, there was a young girl in our church. She was only about 15 years old. And a really bright uh, uh, young girl. Truly loved the Lord. And... Uh, in Australia, Easter's a really big deal. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday are all Easter celebration. And in her high school, she was only in about ninth or 10th grade, I think, at this point, she gets an opportunity to talk about Easter and what it means. And so she makes this presentation. And her teacher afterwards comes up to her and says, Is all that stuff you said true? Is, is, that, is that really the story of Jesus? Um, she was almost embarrassed. This is a Christian school. She didn't know the story. And so after all the students had left, she said, can you tell me more about this? And so this 15-year-old girl shares the gospel truth with her teacher. And then they begin to have a Bible study together after that. Amazing. The message is that it goes out. 
we preach it, we teach it, we, we live it, we, we, we pass it on. That's why we're called the Church of the Apostles. It's because we hold to the teaching of the apostles and we pass it on, sent ones, just as the apostles did. In the rest of chapter 2, Paul enlarges on this teaching ministry to which Timothy has been called, and he uses six metaphors. The first three are the ones that Paul uses often, and they're the ones we're looking at today. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Now, if you read just sort of a cursory uh, reading of this, these verses, you, you might be confused. What, what is the point of these illustrations? What is, what is Paul trying to say to Timothy? In fact, if you had a really cursory uh, review of reading this, as I did at one point, and then he says, uh, you know, think on these things and God will give you understanding. Because sometimes you read them and you think, what in the world is he trying to say here? But Paul needs Timothy to understand that the work of ministry, that the work of of Christian service, of gospel service, will be strenuous. It involves service. It involves suffering. It reminds me of when uh, I I had a history class uh, in college, and the professor told everyone on, on day one Uh, just how difficult and demanding the work was going to be. The next day, half the class was gone, uh, having dropped that course. And uh, it's funny because it ended up being one of my favorite classes. And he was one of my favorite professors. And the next time I signed up for his class again, and I sat there and I waited, and he hands out the syllabus, and he tells everyone just how difficult and demanding and challenging this class is going to be, and the same thing happened. Half the class drops it because they're terrified. They're scared of how hard the work will be. Now, Paul is not doing this to sort of weed Timothy out to say, well, if you can't deal with it, you know, you go, but rather to be realistic with him. And also to encourage him and and remind him that he must be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. So what do these illustrations convey? Well, let's go through them. The soldier. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. When a soldier goes into service, are they expecting an easy go of things? Are they anticipating a, a, a relaxing time? You know, no one sits around and think, you know, I haven't had a vacation in a while. I think I'm going to go join the army. Are they expecting safety? No. They expect and anticipate hardship and risk. And suffering, these are part of what it means to be called to be a soldier. This is why the the prosperity gospel flies in the face of the reality of the true gospel. The gospel promises hope and eternal life. It never promises material wealth or health based on your faith. And Paul says, don't get entangled in the pursuits that take your aim off of the one that you serve. I wonder if any of you have seen an interview with uh, Nick Saban, the, the, the football coach. I forget what team he coaches, the elephants or something. <laughs> uh, 
the man will have just won a championship. And he's already thinking about the next one. He's already focused on the next season. He's already recruiting. He's already getting his staff together. He's already planning the off-season schedule. Why? Because he has such a single-minded focus. But here, the focus is obviously not on football. It is on Christ himself and how to please him. The single-minded disciple is in the world, but does not get entangled in the world. What does that mean? Because I think it can sound like monasticism and that we all need to put on robes and go up into the mountains and be monks. One commentator put it like this, and I found this helpful. Single-minded devotion to a thing, a sport, a philosophy, or a cause can turn you into a machine. But when it is given to Christ who is perfect God and perfect man, whose commands are consonant with perfect love and wisdom and our highest good, then we become what we ought to be and can stand tall even in suffering. We, we are created beings. We are made in the image of our Maker. And when our focus is on the Creator, we do what we were created to do, to praise Him, to glorify Him, to magnify Him. Uh, What's the, the John Piper quote? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Okay, so practically, what does this look like? What does this look like? It's turning everything over to Him. Your business, your family, your finances, your relationships, your time. And so we need to be asking ourselves, how are we glorifying God in these areas of our lives? Second, Paul uses the the athlete metaphor. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Meaning what? In the Greek games, which were still taking place in Paul's time, Every participant had to uh, meet three requirements, birth, training, and competition. They had to be a true-born Greek. Uh, They had to prepare for at least ten months uh, before the games, and then they had to swear before a statue of Zeus that they had done so. And they had to compete within the specific rules of whatever the competition that they were taking place in. I think what Paul is getting at is that there are no shortcuts. There's no beating the system. There's no wreath or victory or perhaps joy or blessing if one bypasses the rules. We are constantly hearing about and reading about teams and individuals being disqualified from competition or retroactively uh, taking championships or games away for cheating. Baseball teams are stealing pitches, uh, 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 pitch signals. Football teams are recording other teams' practices. Athletes are taking performance-enhancing uh, drugs. Gospel work happens according to the way God designed it. There are no shortcuts to bringing salvation to a soul. 
You cannot present a more palatable Jesus in order to win more hearers. You cannot undo Jesus to inflate numbers. All you have done is become a false shepherd bearing a false gospel. And the race, the, the, to continue the athlete metaphor, the, the race, the competition that we're engaged in, it's not against one another as Christians, but rather against the enemy of our souls, against our own sinful nature, against the, the practices and the designs of the world. And our goal as Paul says, is to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So don't look for shortcuts for the work that God has put before you. Even if it is challenging, even if it means suffering, rather be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, Paul uses the metaphor, the the farmer metaphor. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farming is hard work, and it was especially hard in the first century. The farmer's life involved uh, early and long hours, constant toil, plowing, sowing, tending, weeding, reaping, storing. it involved regular disappointments from disease or frost or, or, or pests. And it involved much patience. Paul is speaking about the hard work of ministry service. And I'm not just talking about setting up chairs for an event or serving barbecue at an outreach dinner, fine as those things are. The ministry of the gospel requires strain and struggle and diligence. We said this last week, but consider Paul. Consider Paul who had invested all that time in relationship. All that time and effort and energy, training, teaching, rebuking, encouraging, listening, building, praying, and then these people just up and leave him. But listen to what Paul is saying here. The hardworking will be first in line for the reward. And the reward will far outweigh the toil. Because of this, Paul would tell the Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Then he concludes with this. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. These these analogies of the the farmer, the athlete, the soldier would would help Timothy to understand that the call to join with Paul in suffering, the, the, the thing that obviously was a struggle for Timothy, it was obviously something that put him on edge. Paul's inviting him to come into that. All three have this element of suffering. The the soldier's single-minded devotion, the the athlete's uh, training and competition, the the farmer's toil, they all also have their reward. Another commentator notes, beyond warfare is victory. 
Beyond the athlete's effort is the prize. And beyond agricultural labor is the crop. All of this steeled Timothy to guard the apostolic deposit. In fact, in in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, it alludes to Timothy's being released, indicating that not long after Paul had died, young Timothy did, in fact, go to prison. Timid Timothy, who was a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues to make his point to Timothy in the next verses, but he does it in a unique way, and it seems odd. All of a sudden, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Why does he say this? Why does he just drop this right here? I wonder if it's because when we are occupied in Christian service, in Christian ministry, we get so preoccupied with our tasks and our goals or our structures that we forget why we're doing what we're doing. I can confess, I sometimes get caught up in, the, in logistics and systems and I lose track of what set us off in the first place. I don't think it would be hard for us to consider groups and organizations and churches who have lost sight of Christ amidst all their charity and their good works and their helpfulness. Paul also, I think, may be continuing on with what we discussed at the beginning. He's he's walking through the life of Christ, the shame, the suffering, the salvation, and the service. And he's saying, remember, Timothy, Christ conquered death. Remember, Timothy, Jesus was the promised son of David, the Messiah. He didn't just show up on the scene unannounced. He he was the one who was promised and prophesied thousands of years before he came. He was always God's plan of salvation for, for mankind from the beginning. Remember, Timothy, the power of the gospel. Though it may look weak, I can assure you it's not. For I may be in chains and it makes it look weak. It looks like Nero's the one with power. But the gospel is never chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The unstoppable power of the word means that it will prevail with the elect, so that they will be saved and brought to eternal glory. The mighty, effectual word that gives us reason to endure. And Paul does. And Timothy, too, will stand tall as he wields that unchained word, even when he goes to prison. There's a lot of sections to this, these verses, And so the the final section, Paul's concluding his call to serve Christ with with poetry, with a sort of easy-to-remember poem. And each stanza begins with if and then describes uh, the believer's actions and then is followed by a responding phrase that gives Christ's response. And they're about conversion, perseverance, apostasy, and faithlessness. And I'll go through these quickly. 
I wish we could spend more time on them, but let's look at them. Conversion. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. It's very similar to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. Paul using that baptismal imagery to describe conversion as, as dying and rising with Christ. And that resurrection power, it gives us power now and in the future. And, and so he's saying, remember your new life. Remember your conversion and your current reality and your future reality. Perseverance. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Enduring is Paul's main theme. In, in verse 10 he says, I endure everything. It means to hold your ground, particularly during uh, affliction. And it involves suffering. And so he's saying, remember to hold fast to Christ. And though it may feel everything is out of your control, one day you will reign as a co-heir with Christ. Apostasy, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here, Paul is talking about apostasy, not temporary disowning like what Peter does. It's an ominous declaration. For ones like Hymenaeus and Philetus, more fun names, who will be mentioned in verses 17 and 18. Eternal disownment. It, it is dreadful just to consider this. But it's to show Timothy what's at stake. That this is real. It's a reality. That it's not playing a game. It's real, Timothy. And finally, faithlessness. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, this one's confusing, because there are two views on what Paul is saying here. So I'm going to give you both. First, the negative view, or the warning. Uh, the, the idea is that the first two stanzas are very similar to each other. There's the dying and living, and then there's enduring and reigning. They're very similar. Then the argument is that the second two also reflect one another. Our denial, his denial, our faithlessness, his faithfulness to turn away from the faithless. In other words, this one says... If we are faithless, meaning we have no faith, we have truly denied him, then he is faithful to his warning and will offer the just penalty for denying, which is eternal separation from the Godhead, eternal death. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. The second positive view or the encouragement if we lapse into unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. As Jesus did during that temporary denial by Peter, this would have been a, a great comfort for Timothy, I think, who probably wavered and fell into that unfaithfulness at times. And what a word for us who are often faithless Christians. Why is God like this? It tells us, 
again, because he cannot deny himself. He is faithful to himself. And if our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, he cannot deny us and turn his back on us because it is not determined by our works, but his. Even when we falter. Both of these arguments are true. Both are biblical. And I think we probably need to understand both. The reality of judgment and the reality of grace. So consider your service for the Lord. Don't ignore it. Don't neglect it. Hear the words from Paul to Timothy. Hear his words of desperation as he's pouring his heart out to his spiritual son. Know that serving the work of the gospel is difficult. It comes at at great cost and suffering. But you must remember it is not in vain. It is never in vain. There is great joy in serving and, and, and handing on the truth of the gospel. There is even greater reward in heaven. And so let us be people who take up this mantle, who respond to the challenge and the urging, and we be soldiers and athletes and farmers. For we serve a mighty and a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, I understand it could be easy to hear this and think, uh, I don't really serve much. I'm, I'm kind of content with where I am. Oh, forbid it. Forbid it. For someone took the time to share the truth with us, whether it was our parents or family member or someone we didn't even know. Somebody took the time to do the work of gospel ministry and show us the truth of who Christ is and who we are and how we can be transformed by Him with eternal life. So may we, none of us, consider not doing anything with this gift. But may we consider whom it is that you've put before us in our lives, in the areas and the avenues that you've placed us in specifically, And may we not be timid. May we not go back to our nature. But in confidence going forward, knowing that relationships are difficult and they involve time and energy and people may turn us down, they may desert us. But it's still worth it because we're still called to proclaim this truth. So Father, help us go forward as Paul has urged Timothy remembering and going forward in the grace that comes from Christ alone. For we pray this in his name. Amen.